We're here today with Peter Brock, a friend, an investor, and a very experienced operator, and also now a startup coach. I'm so excited to have you here today, Peter. Thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be here. So for those of the listeners who are not familiar with your background, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so I guess um, just to give the, the, the very sort of long lens uh, background on how I got started, I think it might even make sense to go back to my first couple of jobs. Um, Let's do it. I, you know, I, I, I was always uh, a bit of a hustler. Um, and from the time I was about, I don't know, seven or eight years old, uh, I was pretty entrepreneurial as a kid. And I, I first started uh, knocking on doors around the neighborhood asking who needed their cars washed. Um, and it was, you know, it was tough to resist. I think this, this tiny, I was a small kid, this tiny little seven-year-old kid coming up with a, a bucket and a, a couple of rags. And where did um, you grow up? I grew up in, in Connecticut, in Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I grew up in, in that town. I grew up in a, in a little, a, a tiny little neighborhood that was actually pretty close knit. So we all kind of knew each other. The houses were pretty close together. Um, and you'd almost have to be a monster uh, not to at least give one small job to this. You were exploiting kid. your cuteness. <laughs> I, I was. Um, and uh, and it worked for for quite a while, actually. So I was like, you know, washing cars and 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 uh, cleaning out garages and stuff. And then I realized that if I were to get a paper route, I would have a subscription driven business. Um, and. So I, you know, I applied to the to the local newspaper to be a, a paper boy, um, and uh, and I I got this gig um, where I was delivering newspapers to probably I don't know thirty forty houses, um, but part of the job was you had to sell the subscriptions and then you needed to collect the money every month, and so I realized pretty early on that I had these like. I, I didn't know the terminologies back then, but I had this like point of sale touch point, right? Where I was interacting with the customer all the time and coming to collect so I could sell them stuff. Um, and so then I could start like selling more car washes and more garage cleanouts. And um, ultimately I launched a little like garden seed selling business where I was buying seeds at wholesale and coming around and selling them. And again, you'd kind of have to be a monster not to buy something at some point. So that, that's sort of where my, my career got started and actually where my media career got started. Wow. So did you look at anybody in your family and think, oh, I want to do something entrepreneurial? Did somebody put that idea in your head or was it just something you came up with on your own? Well, um, it wasn't really a, a family of entrepreneurs by any stretch, but it was very much a, a media family um, and that my, my father was very prominent in the media business and that certainly rubbed off. Uh, I, you know, I got exposure from a really young age to, to that world and that business. Um, and then, of course, as is very common, often you, you want to father, you want to uh, follow in your father's footsteps. So, um, that was definitely an early influence. That's interesting because I would have guessed that your love of media started, or at least one of the 
early inflection points was when you studied literature at Tulane because you studied history and literature, correct? I did. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like it went way further back than that. It went way further back. I think it was sort of ingrained maybe even in the DNA. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it did, I think, getting exposure that early, not only to media, but also to the business world. Um, my dad was really great at exposing us to what he did and, you know, even like bringing us to meetings from time to time as kids um, to tag along. And, and so that, that gave me an early love just for, for business in general um, and, and for media. So as I was growing up, I kind of used that time, I, I, in, in retrospect, I used that time, I think, pretty well in terms of giving myself more exposure and more education that would help me later on. Mm -hmm. So walk us through the next sort of career inflection point or pivotal milestone uh, of your work experience. So after you got into entrepreneurship as a kid, uh, learning the wonders of MRR and upselling people <laughs> through your business. What happened after that um, that led you to where you are today? Yeah, so in, in high school, um, I, I, I kind of knew um, by that point that I, I really wanted to be in the, in the media business. And I fairly early on, this was, and again, this, this dates me, but this, this was a sort of mid to late 80s. And cable TV was really coming into its own at that point in time. And I, I kind of knew that I, I wanted to get experience there. I really wanted to see that world. And so in high school, I started knocking on doors of, of cable TV operators in my area. Um, and I eventually landed a, a, an unpaid internship at, at Manhattan Cable TV which at that time had a monopoly in, in New York City. And, and, and get this, one of my jobs there um, was to help with the very earliest tests of video on demand, streaming basically. Um, and we had the smallest of subscribers who had signed up to be beta testers. And they all had special hardware installed in their apartments. And these were like, huge boxes with big buttons and really thick wires. <laughs> and my job as the unpaid intern who was like, I don't know, I must have been like 16 or 17 years old. My job was to stay very late at night, sometimes through the night. Um, and when Mrs. Jones or the Bernstein family decided that they wanted to watch a movie from one of our like very short lists of movies, I'd get this signal in the office and then I'd literally have to run uh, find the VHS tape. Actually, it was a big Betamax tape in our library and quickly get like either Dirty Dancing or Top Gun into the machine and hit play. Um, and it was kind of like those service bells in, in Downton Abbey, if you remember like the beginning of Downton Abbey, um, where I was like the hamster on the wheel. And it was, it was, it was hilarious. Um, but that's really what got me hooked. Um, and from there, I, I, I really knew that I wanted to, to be in that world and in the media world and in, in the TV world. What is it about media that you love? Um, I think I like the, th there's many things that I like about it. I think um, 
from from an entertainment standpoint, I I, I love the the joy um, that it can bring people, um, and I love the fact that so many people devote so much of their time, not just um, for entertainment but for learning as well. Um, to media, it informs us, it entertains us, it educates us, um, and I I caught that bug really early on, and actually. I caught the news bug. Um, I, I, from, from sort of some of those early experiences, I, I had honed in on news um, and really wanting to be in that business. Yeah. Interesting. And then how did you end up at, you know, the, the media companies you've worked at, CNN, Turner, Time? Talk us, uh, talk us, walk us through how you ended up in those roles. Sure. Well, I'll finish out sort of the internship hustle because that's really what got me there. And I, you know, I kind of learned that, okay, I have the, the, the luxury of being able to do these unpaid internships as a kid. Um, right. And not every kid had that luxury. Um, um, and certainly not every kid knew that they wanted to be like in, in that world so early or in any world so early. Um, so while, you know, a lot of my friends were like, getting jobs at the mall or, you know, making hot dogs or something, I, I was able to go do this, which was fantastic. Um, but I, you know, I discovered, actually, I discovered CNN early on. I was a, I was a viewer um, and I loved the news. And CNN was getting big at this time, but not big. I mean, this is like pre-Gulf, pre-first Gulf War, which is really what cemented CNN as a, a big player in the news media. So, you know, after that, you know, hamster wheel internship that I had um, at Manhattan Cable TV, just plugging in tapes, um, I started banging on the doors of, of CNN. Um, and what, what that meant was that I was calling the switchboard um, in Atlanta all the time and trying to befriend, uh, uh, you know, a friendly operator at the switchboard. Wait, can you, can you explain for those of us who don't know what a switchboard is? Okay. So the switchboard is basically just the, the, the main, uh, phone console, uh, that all the, the calls come into, um, and they're, they're just routed into whichever department. And the reason I mentioned this is because remember I'm, I'm dating myself here and I'm dating the time. There's no internet. There's no Google. There's no search. So if you wanted to find out who was the head of an of a department at a company, or you even know what the departments were at that company, you had to talk to somebody. Um, and so I was calling this switchboard in Atlanta and trying to keep an operator on the on the phone. And I was like asking questions about like who runs the ad sales department and who runs the distribution team. And how old were you at this time? 17 or 18, probably. Um, And um, sort of sweet talking my way into these conversations with with phone operators. And then, you know, the reward was maybe I'd get somebody's fax number and a name and then I'd have to fax them. (laughs) So it was a lot of work just to sort of figure out the way in. Um, but I had really good references as, as the, you know, my stint as a, the, the pay-per-view movie 
boy. Um, and, um, and I landed my first internship at, at CNN, like right out of high school. Um, and I have to credit that, that, that sort of set the course of my career for probably the next 15 years or so. So at that point, were you sold on the idea that after college you would go back to news and media? Absolutely. I, I knew that that's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I did, you know, every summer I was interning, I, you know, I was lucky to get like asked back and get some exposure into different parts of the company, both in New York and Atlanta. And then when it came time, when graduation was approaching, I was like faxing like crazy, um, trying to get a job and like a full-time job. Um, and I, I knew at that point, um, that I wanted to be in advertising sales um, because that was the the revenue driver for the company. Um, and I figured I could learn the most there. Um, I knew that I wanted to be in ad sales and I knew by that point that I wanted to be overseas. I wanted to get international exposure. Um, I, I, I wanted to see how you know, multinational companies worked. Um, and I wanted to be part of the, the growth of, of Turner Broadcasting and of, of CNN. So I was like really applying hard and pushing hard to get a job in London. Um, and I got that job. Um, and I was extraordinarily excited about it. Um, I was like packing and getting ready to go. And this is like a couple of weeks after I graduated from college. Um, and I got a phone call um, from... Uh, somebody that I'd worked with and who had been sort of shepherding me through this 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 full time job application experience at at the company, and um, and she said, hey, you know, I know you you have this job in in London and and it's yours if you want it, but um, uh, Ted Turner has just decided to open up an office in Hong Kong, um, and would you go there? Um, and so I said, yes. Um, and two weeks later I was living in Hong Kong. Wow. That's crazy how that one conversation changed the course of your life, especially geographically, because you, you've spent so much time in Asia. Why did the company at that time decide to open up an office in Hong Kong? Well, um, the company was, was maturing so quickly um and uh and so the 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 cnn signal at that point was everywhere it was already global and there were bureaus everywhere um there just weren't uh on the ground business operations in asia at the time and um europe and the growth of europe as a revenue engine had um had been you know, impressive enough and substantial enough that the company was was deciding, hey, we we, we really do need to have regional hubs and, and headquarters um, in different parts of the world. Um, and so that was, you know, that was a big decision uh, driver for the company. Mm-hmm. But it was still kind of an experiment because, you know, when I got there, um, it, you know, the signal was there, but it was like OJ Simpson trial round the clock. Um, and again, you know, dating the time, right. It was like 24 seven coverage of OJ Simpson and they were just taking the CNN US feed, um, and, uh, and sending it to Asia, which wasn't relevant. Um, and you know, Asian viewers weren't as glued to the story as folks were back in the US. Um, 
And so very quickly, we learned as, the, as a small team and a growing team that we needed to localize. Um, and so, you know, within a year, I was, I was one of the first, say, five people um, in the region doing different things. And within a couple of years, um, we had just exploded um, and had probably 250 people on the ground. How was the language barrier? Did you speak Chinese? No, um, but Hong Kong was pretty hospitable um, for that. And, and frankly, like given my role and my brief, I was, I was a, a leader on the ad sales team and, um, you know, I was on the plane all the time. So I, here I was this like 21, 22 year old kid and I was traveling and doing business in, in India and Pakistan, Taiwan and Indonesia Thailand, Australia. Um, and, um, you know, it was just, it was incredible exposure. Um, and uh, again, like very quickly we grew as an organization and then launched local and regional feeds of, of CNN, but also we launched cartoon network, um, in, you know, eventually over 20 languages. I don't know if you remember this, but when you said that to me, when we met in person, I told you that Cartoon Network in Mongolia was my childhood. That was literally how I started to learn English. It was everything to me. I used to binge on all the Cartoon Network shows. So now I have you to thank for that, which is a crazy full circle moment. I've never forgotten that. That was <laughs> that was uh, such a, a coincidence and and so touching to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, I've heard so many stories like that. Um, you know, people people chuckle when I mention Cartoon Network as part of my my past work experience. But um, I think the value that that has brought, um, and the way those the way that content and those characters travel um, is unmatchable, and um, and the learning um, that they've brought to so many kids um, in so many parts of the world um, has been uh, astounding and and gratifying too. Yeah. And I remember when I came to the States, so I was six when I came here. My mom had come here a few years before that. She was really young. She was 22 when she came here. And uh, and I didn't know any English, but I knew a few words and I would randomly say certain words and she'd be like, how do you know that word? And I'd be like from watching, you know, Scooby-Doo or something. And, and she was flabbergasted. So it really was this formative experience in my childhood. I love that. And were you were you also um, Powerpuff Girls fan? I loved. Oh my gosh, Lo like my cousins and I would. Um, we each had a character. I was Buttercup, which at the time I didn't like. I felt like I got the short end of the stick, but now I embrace it. The Buttercup energy. But we loved the Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Lab and all of it. Like I could. I even sometimes. Now this is going on a tangent, but I even sometimes now like to like pull up YouTube videos because it's so nostalgic and comforting for me of some of these shows because they're they're really good shows. They're really good shows. And, you know, but by the way, Buttercup is misunderstood. She's a badass. She is. Now I see that. <laughs> yeah. Big Buttercup energy. So what were the skill sets that you would say you have developed or that you had developed during that time of doing ad sales and traveling from country to country and being this early 20-something-year-old that was being kind of thrown into the deep end and figuring out how to navigate that media world? People skills. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, there's no substitute 
for that. And, um, uh, you know, I think you can, you can study as hard as you possibly can. Um, but if you're going to take your career on the road, um, the way that I have, um, the way that I was, I was lucky enough to do and to continue doing for a couple of decades. Um, and, and even now, I'm sure we'll get to that, but people skills, um, I think, you know, for me, that's been the most valuable tool in the tool belt, um, is being able to, to sit down, talk with people, relate to people, sell to people, right? You have to have people skills if you're going to be good at, at, at sales. Um, but, um, but really listen to people. And I think that becomes uh, exponentially and orders of magnitude more important um, when you're doing that um, in uh, international and overseas and foreign environments um, where you're not local. Um, where you don't speak the language. Um, but of course, you know, we had the benefit where, you know, a lot of our clients and a lot of our, uh, the governments that we did business with as well spoke English. Um, and so we were able to do a lot of that business in, in English. Um, but still, you have to be able to, to relate to people and, and, and frankly, I think be likable. Yeah. And when you think about being a founder and also in some ways being an investor, sales is such a big part of it because you're always convincing people of something and selling what you're building. So that makes a lot of sense. Were there any interesting or notable stories around cultural misunderstandings or mishaps because you were traveling from uh, between so many countries? I'm, I'm so curious. Yeah, you know, there... There were, um, and I would say I, you know, less probably less so for me. I think I was just so um, immersed so early, um, and and had this sort of beginner's mindset everywhere I went, which I think was a, a huge um, benefit um, to just getting me around. Right, I was always learning. I was always asking questions. If I was going to ask a dumb question, I'd say this is probably a really dumb question, but let me ask. And that got me through a lot of doors. Um, and I think, you know, being humble, especially in Asia, um, it, it's not it doesn't just help. It is necessary, um, especially as a foreigner, um, especially as a Westerner trying to do business um, in Asia. But um, but but to your question you know, we had a lot of folks coming in and out of the region. Um, you know, it wasn't just us, the, the, the teams on the ground. We had the, the senior bosses um, coming in and out from, from New York and Atlanta. Um, and they weren't so preoccupied with being humble <laughs> or, or having a learning mentality. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, we had, <laughs> we had some fun experiences where, you know, I, I specifically remember a, um, a big client event that, that we had set up. This was a few years in where we had already, you know, gotten pretty entrenched in, in the region and gotten to know senior government folks and, and, and big clients very well. And uh, I had arranged um, a, a, a small golf outing um, with some very senior uh, Thai government officials um and you know even like the head of thai airways was there and 
one of my bosses came in from from New York um, and hadn't met any of these people. Um, but from the from the moment he, he landed was like bragging about his golf game and how good he was. Um, and I was trying to run cover um, in between him and um, and these uh, wonderful clients who were going along with it. But I'm sure we're scratching their heads and thinking, who is this person? Um, and we had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of little mishaps like that. Nothing terrible. Um, but it's just funny to see, especially as you, for me, as I sort of went longer and longer into my experience and further into my overseas and Asia experience, I was there for so long that, you know, seeing folks coming in um, from other parts of the world and, and making really easily avoidable mistakes um, was entertaining. I, I think the takeaway here is humility will get you far, especially when you're in a new place. I think it's a good lesson in life in general. Yeah. So at what point did you decide to start your own? You started two media companies, both of which you took public. Can you walk us through how you transitioned from being an executive in media and then starting your own thing? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I, long story as short as I can make it. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I had this incredible experience at at CNN and Turner Broadcasting, um, and, uh, you know, after the explosive growth that we saw in Hong Kong, I ended up moving to Singapore and setting up a, a second regional hub in Singapore on my own and hiring locally there, um, and. In the midst of all of that, Turner was acquired by Time Warner, um, and I started working really closely with other colleagues in other parts of the business, like HBO and Warner Brothers and, and Time Inc. And within a couple of years, I was offered the role of publisher within Time Inc., where I think I, I, I think I was like 27 or 28, and I think that made me the youngest publisher in the history of that company. Um, and I was kind of reluctant to take the role because I was really enjoying the rocket ship growth that we were seeing at, at Turner Broadcasting. And at, by this time, the decline of the magazine industry um, and, uh, and the publishing business was very well underway and, and known. So the brief for this role was to, to pare down the organization. Um, it, was, it was doing layoffs. It was divesting assets that we had acquired over decades and generally doing a lot of unfun, dirty work. Um, but that experience was, was priceless. Um, and, you know, I, I took on that role knowing that it wasn't going to be fun. Um, but knowing that it was going to be a great experience for me um, and great exposure for me. Um, and I, I think, you know, and again, I, I, I have this conversation with entrepreneurs and I'm sure, sure we'll get to that part later, but I think getting corporate experience um, is so extraordinarily valuable if you can. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, it was it was of, of huge value just having that almost, you know, live classroom like experience of of being able to learn so many different aspects of of building, of of managing um, and then obviously domain experience as well. But 
but through all of that, um, you know, towards the end of my time at, at Time Warner, I started seeing from that vantage point, I started seeing a lot of opportunity in mainland China. Um, and I'd been doing a lot of business in mainland China on behalf of the company, looking at, at deals on the ground, looking at acquisition opportunities. And I started seeing more and more opportunity on the ground in China, in the media business. Um, and it was at this singular point of time um, where the regulatory environment in China was changing um, that allowed us, that allowed the company that I ended up building with co-founders um, to acquire certain types of, of media assets that, that prior to, to the, the regulatory changes would never have been possible. Um, and so... The more and more I, I saw that opportunity, um, the more I got interested um, in trying to get hold of that opportunity. Um, and that sort of led me to making you know, the, the jump um, mm -hmm. to, to, to being an entrepreneur um, and to, to picking up and, and, and starting a business in, in China with, with two fantastic co-founders. And was this Redgate? This was Redgate. Yeah, this okay. was Redgate. So we we launched that company in, in 2003. Um, in uh, you may know this, um, in the in the midst of SARS. Um, so we were in the in the midst of a of a um, a growing pandemic. Um, we were social distancing, we were wearing masks, we were sheltering in place from time to time as well. Um, and building a business. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's uh, it's fascinating how um, how sort of it came full circle in 20 years or so. Um, but we you know we raised some early capital. Um, we saw we saw opportunities to acquire uh, specific types of assets um, in China, and we set about at first acquiring um, content publishers um, who were doing magazines and also their online versions um, for domestic audiences in China. Um, and so, you know, our first, our first acquisition, our first deal was to acquire uh, the company in Beijing that had the rights to an old uh, American magazine called Popular Science. Um, and they were a great team. The magazine had some distribution. We saw them as a platform that we could launch more content through. And we, we acquired that business as, as really our first deal on the ground. So was the vision for that company, for Redgate, to consolidate these different um, assets that you were seeing emerge from the ground up um, in disparate locations within China and then to sort of... Uh, basically create a hold co in an environment that was more kind of uh, um, where the regulation was loosening up a little bit and capitalizing on kind of the emerging market of China. Like what, what was the, what was the kind of pitch to investors? What was the vision? Yeah. So um, at, at the time we were getting started and just before that, um, the, the major media platforms in China were all state owned. Um, and so if you were a big advertiser, if you were Coca-Cola or Mercedes or um, 
let's take the Chinese brand, um, Lenovo or higher air conditioning, um, you, you kind of had to use and, and, and almost exclusively use state-owned media um, as your major advertising platforms in China. Um, but in the early 2000s, that started to change. Um, and it became possible for non-government entities to own different parts of, of, of media that would allow for essential ownership of, of content platforms. And I say that it sounds really, really vague and circuitous, but it was complicated. Um, we couldn't necessarily own all of the content ourselves. We had to partner with, with local entities or sometimes government entities to actually like create content, but we could own the ad platforms. We could own the distribution platforms. We could own, for instance, we could own um, ad sales operations around magazines. We could own billboards. Um, we could own ad sales operations around TV operators and radio stations. So yes, we were building a holding company to consolidate assets in specific domains um, and for us we really identified content publishing i.e magazines and online content uh, tv operators radio stations and outdoor advertising and so we set about trying to do a lot of things uh very quickly um and you know raised capital along the way to do that but to backtrack the the first area that we saw the ability to grow in and some low-hanging fruit was in that content publishing space. So we, we acquired that popular science team, um, and then we started launching a lot of other uh, media properties through that team. We launched Top Gear um, in partnership with the BBC and we had, you know, a big automotive section as, as car ownership was really coming to its own. In China, we launched um, Rolling Stone magazine in China as the music industry was really taking off. Um, and, uh, and eventually we ended up partnering with a, a company in Hong Kong, which was nearly a hundred years old and a big newspaper and magazine publisher in Hong Kong. And we, we merged our mainland China assets with their Hong Kong assets, which gave us the, the size and the track record um, financially to take a, a business public. Um, and so within it really like a couple of years of, of throwing open the doors to our, our new acquisition-driven company, we had a, a, a piece of the business that was ready to go public, and, and that's, that's what we did. Um, and, and that became a company that we called One Media Group, um, which is um, a, a, a Hong Kong-based um, publisher, but with mainland Chinese exposure. Mm -hmm. And you uh, filed for IPO in a tricky time. We'll get to that in a second. But um, I'm curious about how you started to pull together the team for that and what kind of investors you were pitching. So were they all uh, Chinese? Were your team members Chinese? Were they from your prior um, workplace at, uh, you know, in media? What where, how did you start to build that team as a startup founder? Yeah, so I had two great co-founders. Um, 
both of whom um, have deep backgrounds in China, um, one of whom is China Chinese, um, grew up in China, um, has deep ties to, to the market. Um, the other who had been an entrepreneur in, in telecoms and very early internet days in China. And we all knew each other really well. Um, and so it was initially the, it was initially me. And then, you know, I sort of recruited them and kind of sold them into the business. And, and, um, and then we started hiring locally. Um, so we were building teams in mainland China. Um, and then when we started to, uh, to partner with uh, the, the big publisher I mentioned in Hong Kong, that, that company was called, is called Ming Pao. Um, we were hiring locally um, through them as well um, and, and, and really building that way. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we had identified that, that the opportunity, the first opportunity was really around that content publishing business, which is why we, we essentially spun out um, a bunch of assets from this holding company that we had set up um, to list them in Hong Kong on the on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and we did that. I think it was around two thousand five. Got um, it. And uh, and the the timing for that um, was was really just right. Um, we we were very lucky that we caught the market timing well. Um, and the only reason I say that is not to brag. Um, it's that the second time around, um, we didn't get so lucky, um, with the market time. And, um, so we, we had this, this public asset, this public entity where I I was CEO of that as well, um, as a publicly traded company. Um, we had that asset that was listed. Um, it was pretty much independent from the, the, our, our, top company holding company um but then we had the holding company that was still acquiring other assets so we were acquiring outdoor advertising acquiring um radio companies and radio stations we were acquiring um tv ad sales groups um and the the goal there was to do the same thing was to take this this broad holding company public um, but this time in the U.S., um, there were a lot of Chinese companies getting listed in the U.S. at that point. Um, and as, as sort of 2007 approached and 2008, um, we knew the timing was becoming very different from the, the lucky timing that we had just a couple years earlier with our first um, public offering. And, and we were right. We, we knew we were racing against the clock. We had acquired a lot of assets um, in order to go public, um, and uh, and then Lehman Brothers happened um, in 2008. Um, and I know, you know, I know this is a an audio only uh, episode, um, but you and I are actually looking at each other on screen, and you can see my my white hair. That actually happened back then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was like right at the same time. And probably within weeks, I, I remember looking in the mirror once and saying, oh, my God, <laughs> but it, it happened early. I must have been in my in my mid 30s. Um, and. Uh, and it was, a you know, it was a, it was a really trying time um, because we, you know, we had tried to time the markets. We knew we weren't hitting the markets properly. Um, 
we were we were filed for a Nasdaq listing at that point, um, and uh, and at one point we couldn't get our bankers on the phone because our bankers weren't employed by their bank anymore, um, and uh, and that's when we knew we had to put pencils down, um, stop the listing, and you know figure out what to do next. And it was it was a tough time. I imagine it was tough because there's a whole Harvard Business School case study about just how challenging it was. So tell us about how you navigated that time. Um, and then I also want to ask about the difference between filing to go public in Asia on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange versus the U.S. Um, what, you know, what goes into that kind of consideration? But first, let's talk about how you navigated that rocky time. Yeah, it, rocky to say the least. Um you know, we we had to go back to basics, right? We had um, we had acquired a lot of assets, um, and uh, and again, the the learnings from this are are really unmatchable, um, and really in this case, the learnings of what not. Um, we we had acquired a lot of assets um, with the intent to take them public, right? And they they fit um, within the group for sure. But they weren't must-have assets that we had acquired, um, and you know there were certain businesses that we still hadn't really integrated into the company yet. So there was a lot of teething pains, just management-wise, of like getting their teams to work with our teams, and we were doing all of that while we were you know getting into the the, the filing process. Um, and can can we pause and sure. talk about? why you wanted to go public. This is broadly for people to understand what that's about. Um, but specifically for you guys, why was it so important to capitalize on that window of opportunity? And um, what was the urgency around that? At that time, and again, this is sort of the lead up to the the global financial crisis. At that time, um, that was all the rage, right? Like we saw SPAC mania um, just a few years back, which you you recall, and we're still kind of you know seeing the tail end of like the the aftermath of that. Um, our mania in you know let let's call it oh seven oh eight um, was was China listings in the U.S. Um, and there was a there was a window of opportunity where um, U.S. based institutional investors had a huge appetite for Chinese listings. Um, and we had a special advantage in that, you know, we as a founding team and as operators and managers had pretty good track records and pedigrees, right? And CVs, right? Where people could do their homework on us. And, and you know, I had experience at, at Time Warner and my, you know, one of my colleagues had experience at News Corp and so on. And so, we saw this window um, partially because of that, but partially because we had, you know, we had acquired really good assets that were um, profitable and generating huge revenues and growing. Um, and so the impetus to go public was was commercial. Um, you know, I'll be honest; it was very much commercial. Um, and we felt like if we could get public. And raise that that public capital, and and more importantly, have the the public currency, the currency of our equity, um, which would now be publicly traded. 
um, that we could acquire more. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm now allergic to companies that um, are, you know, solely on an IPO path um, or solely have that um, in their sites as their, their, their big exit plan. Um, because I, I know how iffy it is. I know how challenging it is. Um, and I know that that's definitely not always the cleanest and best way to do it. Um, but, and I, and I learned from experience, um, because ours was, was so challenging. And after those experiences, how did you make your way to Los Angeles? Yeah. So, um, I'll sort of cap off that story in that we had to put our pencils down on our listing in, in 2008, um, when the financial crisis hit and, we had to get back to basics um, in, in how we manage the company. We had to sell off some assets um, and, you know, some, some assets that we had fairly recently acquired um, and pare down the company again um, and really manage it, um, which, you know, sounds obvious, um, but uh, it was... It was a very tough thing when we had bulked up too quickly um, and acquired too much too quickly, um, and so we we ended up sort of getting the company right sized, um, and then you know global financial crisis was not an easy time, um, so we ended up having a couple of lines of credit um, established with with some of our investors, um, and that was extraordinarily helpful um and we weathered the storm um barely barely weathered the storm um and ultimately um when the markets started to come back uh we restructured the business and we were able to get it public in hong kong um and that was a you know it was a very tough process it wasn't at quite the value that we had hoped um, to see in the U.S., um, but we got it done. We found the exit. Um, we were able to um, do right by our our own shareholders um, and by even some of the companies that we had acquired for equity instead of cash. Um, so you know, people got their liquidity, which was great. Um, and to answer your question of how I got to L.A., I was really tired. Um, I, uh, you know, when we finally found that exit. Um, in, in retrospect, I'd, I'd been, I think, really searching for, for quite some time on, on how to find my way out. Um, and I, I had, I'd been at that point living mostly in Beijing, um, which was not a lifestyle choice. It was a, it was a place that, um, you know, the, the bulk majority of our business was. Um, and I, I love Beijing. It's a wonderful city. Um, but it never felt like home for me. It was just 24 seven work. Um, and I, I'd gotten tired of, of sort of the, the lifestyle that I had, um, just being on that hamster wheel, um, and not having any life outside of work. Um, I had at the same time gotten really interested for years, actually, um, in investing. Um, you know, we'd been doing that as a company, right? We were very acquisition driven. So, you know, by nature, we were investors and in, in acquiring control stakes in companies. But 
but alongside you know building my own company i'd been angel investing um and i i was very lucky to get very early exposure as an as an angel investor into sort of internet 1.0 um in china into you know a lot of our peers um who were building companies at the same time which ended up being orders of magnitude larger than what we built um but just like any other burgeoning um, ecosystem, right? You get to invest in each other's companies and support each other. And I, I sort of caught a bit of exposure that way as, a, as an angel investor. Um, and then, you know, had, had also like helped other entrepreneurs along the way as they were building, uh, you know, in, in different parts of the industry and in different parts of the, the country as we were building our business in China. And I loved that. Um, and I, I got very interested in, um, in investing, but specifically in, in early stage venture capital. And so my choice was kind of binary if I wanted to do that. Um, and I didn't just want to be an angel investor. I really wanted to learn, um, how to invest in early stage from a more institutional vantage point. Um, and so my choice was binary. It was do that in mainland China. Um, and that would have been obvious because, you know, my contacts were there. The venture capital business um, and landscape in China was, was really, you know, expanding um, extraordinarily quickly. Um, or do it in the U.S. Um, where I didn't have as much um, exposure and didn't have really the network. But, you know, I got really interested in at least exploring it. So, I started, um, you know, getting on planes um, and going back to, at that time, it was, it was the Bay Area. And I was just, you know, sort of plugging in with folks or reconnecting with people who I already knew or networking around people who I wanted to know and, and learning and having those early conversations um, and, and learning that I really did um, want to be in, in early stage venture. And, and then I discovered LA by accident on like a series of side trips. I really didn't know that many people here. It's interesting because you went to Asia at a time when I imagined the startup ecosystem was really sort of um, a fraction of what it eventually became. So it's kind of early innings. And then you went to LA permanently in 2014, which in the scheme of things was kind of a a nation industry compared to now. Now it's really robust. Um, and, and now with Hypothesis, there's this through line of kind of being a pioneer in these emerging markets when it comes to startups. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I look, I, I don't think I'm particularly good at anything. Um, but I do think if there's one thing that I'm good at, um, or that I could um, sort of point at and, and take credit for. It's spotting markets really early. Um, and, um, you know, with, with, with Hong Kong and Asia, I kind of lucked into that, frankly. Um, but along the way and, and seeing opportunities when regulatory markets were changing in China, I think I, I sort of honed a, a little bit of a skill and maybe just a nose for it. Um, when I started to make those side trips to LA, you're right, it was, it was really early. Um, but I did smell an emerging market. Um, and 
you know, at that at that time, LA still felt like a single industry town. I think to a lot of you know folks who would pop in and pop out of LA, but it seemed like there was a lot more happening. It seemed like there was a lot more happening in, in venture at that time, and so you know, it it caught my curiosity, and I decided that you know I'd sort of reroute some of those visits, um, and I decided I wanted to try to meet like everyone who was an institutional investor in, in LA in, in venture. And so I set about doing that. And like two weeks later, that's how small LA was. I kind of knew everybody, (laughs) (laughs) but now you can't do that. But, um, but back then it just, there weren't that many people approaching, um, LA as a venture market, um, where they were, you know, intending to, to build institutional platforms. Um, to capitalize on the market. And tell us how you got into involvement with Mucker. Yeah, so that was really, you know, again, luck. Um, I uh, had sort of had that plan to to meet everyone that I could. Um, a, a lot of, I think a lot of venture, and especially, you know, when it comes to working together in venture, um, is chemistry. Right, chemistry and taste, taste in people as well. Um, and you know, I, I met a lot of folks. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and um, when I when I met uh, Mucker, and I, I met Will and, and Eric Mucker, um, who I, I think you've met or or at least know who they are. Um, and um, you know, great guys who had both spotted that opportunity even earlier than I, and had already set up. Um, mucker on the ground in LA and run like a couple of accelerator classes um, before we met. And it was really organic. Um, you know, they were really gracious in introducing me to their portfolio companies and, and you know, making sure I, I, I met the people that I wanted to meet um, outside of the portfolio as well. Um, but I kind of became like that um, kind of the the partner who turns up um, first with a toothbrush and then like has a drawer and then like gets a closet. Um, and then before you know it, you're sort of living together. Um, the trips became longer. I was spending more and more time, you know, getting to know the, the portfolio companies and they, they sort of gave me carte blanche to, you know, work with whoever I wanted. Um, you know, I could co-invest. Um, I became an EIR and then a venture partner. Um, and you know, venture is, I think if, if nothing else, it is an apprenticeship driven business where you gotta just be constantly learning. Right. And there's no perfect way in for me, it was sort of the luck of, of meeting some, some folks who, um, I, I really had, uh, you know, good chemistry with, um, we like the same types of people. Um, and you know, they were, they were kind enough to sort of let me into their world and just let me loose. Um, and so for me, as they, as, as the portfolio was growing there, I was able to step in and, um, and work with some, you know, incredible early teams, um, and really, you know, dig in and start helping and, you know, shout outs to those early teams, right. Those, those early LA, um, uh, companies and and great success stories like Honey and Retention Science and Medley and Bloom Nation, 
Kixie and Black Tux and Service Titan. There's just so many from that vintage um, that were getting going. And, you know, Mucker and, and Eric and Will had, had the nose for the, you know, to identify those founders, those companies. And, you know, I had the good fortune to be able to, you know, to really dig in and, um, and, and help some of those teams really early on as they were getting to market. Mm-hmm. And I have so many more questions for you, but we don't have a lot of time. So we will try to get through as many as we can. Before we talk about hypothesis, I want to get your perspective on what you think the strengths of LA's startup ecosystem are. You know, I think LA has just so much to offer. It's such a, first of all, it's just such a huge market. It's such a deep market. Um, and, um, you know, pick pick an industry and it's here. Um, pick an industry and it's big here. Um, and so if you're a, a, a founder um, and you want to start building market by market or just running tests, you can test anything here because it all exists here. And I think unlike the Bay Area where, you know, the Bay Area has become, I, I'm, I'm a fan and I, I love being there. I love Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, and so this is, this is not a knock. But I think it's a fact, right? The Bay Area is just so used to having tech around um, and tech founders around testing things um, that I think the test results sometimes get skewed because, you know, the, the test market, the beta market um, is just so used to having new stuff coming in and, and being tested, whether it's enterprise or consumer. Right. Whereas LA is just so big and so deep, and there's so much else going on here um, that I think you can get great test results here and, and pull really good early data from this market. Um, and I think, lastly, I think what, what's shaken out over the years is that, and, and this is not a surprise, but LA has just become, from a venture standpoint, really powerful when it comes to the creator economy. Um, when it comes to attracting the, the best in, in consumer brands and ATC um, and, you know, anything that, that, that has a sort of taste element, um, I think L.A. is unmatchable. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So what inspired you to start Hypothesis? Yeah, so, you know, I think part of the whole thesis of even coming to the U.S. was that... Um, you know, I started to see the opportunity that innovation really wasn't going to be just single market focused anymore, um, or even like multi hub focused. At the time, I was starting to gravitate to the U.S. You know, obviously Silicon Valley has always been Silicon Valley, but there was, um, you know, there was there was London, um, there were a, a handful of other um, sort of big global regional hubs for innovation, um, but a handful, right? And you, you, you didn't really see it in Hong Kong, but you saw it a little bit in Beijing and Shanghai, for instance, in China. But everything sort of gravitated to either the Bay Area or a handful of hubs. And, and um, I, I think now it's old news, but at that time, it started to seem obvious to me and to, you know, quite a few others that it wasn't going to be like that for too long and that um, information flow had proliferated such that you really could start a a company anywhere. 
Um, and, um, you know, you, you need a few key ingredients. You need, I think, a strong university ecosystem that's throwing off good engineers and good tech folks who can step in and, and help build um, as, a, as a founder. Um, you need deep-ish markets that you can test into. But again, I think we've learned over the years and certainly through the pandemic that you don't necessarily need to be physically in those markets to test certain markets. Um, and it just felt like innovation was going to start happening everywhere. Um, and so with Hypothesis and my partners, we decided to really extrapolate on that thesis of like LA as a second market to, to, to Silicon Valley to really everywhere um, as a second market um, to Silicon Valley and to see innovation everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a twist in that we also, the, the three of us are, are all company builders ourselves. We've built between the three of us, I think, 10 companies. Um, and uh, we wanted to have the opportunity to, to have a venture studio arm as well um, and to be able to either partner with founders at the very earliest point um, of their their building and their and their journeys, where you know they may be coming off of building something else and wanting to tinker a little bit and experiment, and we can partner up with them right at that time, um, or incubate our own projects from the ground up. Um, and we've we've done both. Um, we have now. I think close to 30 companies in the portfolio. We were extraordinarily lucky, extraordinarily lucky in that we raised our first capital, I think a week or two before lockdowns began um, in March of, of 2020. So um, again, you know, pure luck in that we, we'd been out raising um, and, uh, and we managed to, to, to get that capital in the door just as the pandemic was taking hold. And we were able to, with, with some dry powder, um, you, you know, really rethink the market, um, and, um, and think about what the world might look like, um, in this sort of new paradigm. It's really interesting timing. Can you tell us about what opportunity zones are? Yeah, so opportunity zones are 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 really a a a, a tax idea, um, where the the federal government changed its tax policy a few years back um, to really spur investment um, into certain geographies where investors would um, be incentivized um, from a tax perspective to invest their capital into opportunities of all kinds um, in less likely geographies. Um, so for instance, it, it can get very targeted um, down to even like certain parts of a city um, can be opportunity zones, say adjacent to like we're sitting in LA, for instance, adjacent to Culver City in an up and coming area where the local city government has decided they really want to incentivize more investment dollars to be in that particular geography. They've been able to to um, structure things with the federal government, where that particular um, 
zone um, becomes an opportunity zone and investors can if they are to invest in a in a business or property um, pay essentially zero tax um, on the capital gains um, if they structure that investment way this might be a naive question but does that also apply to LPs who invest in a fund that invests in those markets? Yes, it does. Um, if the fund is structured in the right way. Okay. Um, and uh, and so the answer is yes, it does. And I think you're you're asking this question because when we set out um, to to build hypothesis. We really went all in on opportunity zones. We drank that Kool Aid really early and still believed in that market. Problem was is that we really couldn't raise um, our own capital um, into that structure. It was it was a bit too onerous for venture LPs um, to to get their heads around. Um, mm-hmm. And while we you know we believe in the opportunity and we 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 also believe in the upside. Imagine, you know, not paying any tax with venture math, right? Imagine not paying any tax on like venture style returns. It's unthinkable. It's incredible. But it was it, it was just too much for investors to get their heads around the kind of paperwork that they would need to file in order to, to do that. So we ended up being just a regular fund. We're just targeting um, emerging ecosystems around the U.S., great founders and helping them build really from formation stage. Um, so even pre pre-seed like formation stage um, to at the latest seed, but without the opportunity zone structuring because it, it just, it didn't work for us, unfortunately. I see. I remember when we first talked about hypothesis, you mentioned that the fund size will be limited to 10 million for each fund. Is that still the case? And can you walk us through that strategy behind the portfolio construction? Yeah, so we really set out to be a series of small funds. Um, and we we see that as an advantage for a few reasons. One, um, it keeps us very disciplined, um, right? With our with our fund one, which we're, we're still investing from right now, um, we're writing relatively small checks. We're not leading rounds. Um, we're um, pretty high velocity, which basically just means that we can make decisions pretty quickly. Um, we have all sorts of, um, of touch points um, around different markets that we're interested in, scouts, mentors, other VCs um, that we work with where you know, we, we see really good deal flow. We're able to make, you know, we think, good decisions very quickly. Um, and then there's less friction where we're, because we're not leading, um, we're, we're able to wire very quickly. We're also not asking for board seats. And I think that aligns us with founders, um, in a better way, certainly at this, you know, very, very early stage. Um, and I think, you know, the bigger you get and the more capital you have under management in one fund, the more pressure there is to, to write those bigger checks um, and uh, to do bigger deals and to go later stage too. Um, and, uh, you know, full respect to every other fund that's sort of gone that route. But we felt that that, you know, sort of brings you into 
to different skill sets, right? Where I think, you know, a very early stage pre-seed stage investor is not the same investor as a series A investor um, or a growth investor. That's like a, you know, to, to me, that's a very different skill set and a very different muscle that you need to exercise um, to be to be good. Mm-hmm. We just touched on opportunity zones and uh, how sort of enthusiastic you are about the concept in general as a way to spark more investment in these areas. What are other policies that you think the U.S. could implement to invigorate entrepreneurship, especially in some of these other markets? Yeah, I think there's a lot. And I think that's, I mean, we, I could talk for hours and I'll try not to. Um, <laughs> Part two. Lot, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe episode two. Um, but uh, I think there's, there's a, a lot and, and a lot necessary, right? I think, you know, we as a country um, still have an, an enormous advantage um, in that we, we really are, I think, the seat of innovation globally. Um, and a, a lot of that is policy driven, right? I think a lot of it is without without getting into politics, a lot of it is policy driven. I think we are, you know, we are a country that is very friendly to entrepreneurs, to people who are testing different things, um, to people who are um, trying to innovate. Um, and, um, and yet, uh, I think there's so much room for improvement. Um, and I think that, you know, given the, the major global and existential challenges that we're facing today, um, you know, from, uh, from climate change to, to misinformation, uh, to authoritarianism, um, you name it, we're, we're facing a lot of issues, um, as a species, um, and, um, I think we need to step up our game as a country um, in in helping entrepreneurs innovate faster. Um, and that means even like finding ways to take down barriers um, when it comes to uh, experimenting with drug discovery. Um, and you know we don't we as a firm don't do that. That's a different skill set. Um, but we all know how heavily regulated these markets are, and for good reason. But I think we need to think with a more innovation mindset as a country and as a government um, to allow for um, a lot more um, innovation experimentation a lot faster. Uh, if we're gonna, if we're gonna really gonna number one capitalize on opportunity, but but also get ourselves out of a potentially existential risk. Mm -hmm. I want to transition with the time we have um, to talking about your coaching now. You have worked with countless founders. You have been a founder operator several times with different companies. And I would love to, especially for this context that we're in, this climate that we're in where valuations are getting squeezed and there's a lot of tumult and, you know, startups are having to be more efficient and facing a more challenging fundraising environment. What are some of the lessons that you've learned about right-sizing a company and going back to basics, like you said, that would be applicable to founders today? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, 
for me, it's there's been sort of a, a yeah, to use your term, through line, um, right, of uh, working with with founders, um, with colleagues, um, with uh, you know partners along the way too. Really, as a coach um, for the you know the bulk majority of my career, um, where you know I think we're always going to see challenging times um, and there's always going to be cycles. I think for, for younger folks um, who have been building over the last few years, they're, they're seeing their first really difficult cycle. And I remember what that felt like. Um, And it does get easier, but it doesn't get easy, right? Like it's never, it's never easy because every time is slightly different. Right. And there are slightly different factors at play. But for me, you know, I've I've kind of been in many ways coaching for a long time um, and, you know, working with founders in helping them to, uh, I like to say, make new mistakes um, where at least we can try to avoid um, some some easily avoidable mistakes that either I've made um, or. I've seen other founders that I've been exposed to make. Um, and so, you know, I think during these difficult market times, right, there, there's just so much to process. Um, and business moves faster and faster, like literally every year, right? Like it just, it become it's, it's a different animal than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago when I was setting out to build my, my first company. Um, but I think right now being able to kind of cut through the noise and actually like hire well, manage well, fire well, um, are all really, I think, key skills that don't change. Right. And I think as, as founders right now to be able to you know, lean on others who have had, uh, I think, really good experience and a depth and breadth of experience is invaluable. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are saying that because we are entering an economic contraction, that is actually going to bode well for the prospects of innovation coming out of this period. Do you feel as optimis- optimistic about this new vintage of 2023 and maybe beyond as others? Yes, um, wholeheartedly. I think that is a truism. Um, I think there will be an explosion of innovation um, already starting, um, right? It's, it, we're, we're seeing it. It's already starting. Um, but I wholeheartedly agree. And, and I mean, just look at the numbers. We've had hundreds of thousands of layoffs of you know, highly competent, highly qualified uh tech executives um, and engineers who many of whom are are now starting their own companies um, and that coupled with the fact that we have you know I think uh, a, a five alarm um, uh, climate environment where you know we we need innovation as quickly as possible um, we have the opportunities that um, 
that AI um, is bringing us, and we're seeing an explosion of, of building and innovation there. And I think we're going to see in this vintage so many interesting companies um, coming out of the you know the sort of formation year of 2022, maybe 2023, 2024, and beyond. Mm-hmm. As an investor, what are some of the verticals and technologies that you're most excited about right now? So I think for for us and for me, um, you know, we we're excited about a lot of things, um, and we're pretty broad in terms of the way we look at things. But I think there are some some obvious areas where you know our interests and skill sets, um, you know, go very well together with some of the opportunities out there. For us, we really see in in health and healthcare. Um, huge white spaces and huge room for improvement and just you know just in the in the health space alone we look at things in sort of three buckets that we're very interested in where you know we're seeing a a pandemic and mental health um and not enough solutions uh there we're seeing um a huge white space and remarkably so um in women's health in america um, and just a void where it's 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 unthinkable that there's a void in in the space and so much opportunity in the space, but there is, um, and so much room for innovation, so much need for innovation, improvement, and and launching of new companies um, in the space, and then in aging, um, where you know in ten years time we're going to have ninety million Americans who are above the age of sixty five. Um, we're we're one of the most rapidly aging countries on planet Earth, um, and we don't have solutions um, for our aging loved ones, um, i.e., ourselves. Um, and so there's plenty of room for innovation there. And then I think, lastly, just from an impact perspective, we're seeing you know so many um, interesting startups in the in the climate space um, where you know. We're having a lot of interesting conversations. All that's honestly one of the things that I admire most about you, Peter, and that's why I wanted to have you on. Is you have had this illustrious career as an investor and operator, but also you're very mission driven, and I love that. And that's um, those are the people I strive to surround myself with. So it was an honor to have you on. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a privilege. And where can people find you? Um, probably easiest to find me on LinkedIn and I'm also on Twitter from time to time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you.